Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Welcome back to Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. I'm Adam Johnson. Well, we're in the third week of September, so before we dive into today's storytelling session, I want to highlight a couple of things from Mitochondrial Disease Awareness Week, which we're now right in the middle of. Keep your eyes peeled on social media as we try to spread some awareness and provide education about Mito. If you want to follow along and get involved, you could do a number of things, like wearing green, sharing it with some of the people that you know who have Mito. really does make such a difference when people show up for you in various ways. At least it does for me. You could also share some of the posts that you see on social media to your feed. The more people we get this information in front of, the better it is for our entire Mito community. We need cures, and you never know when the right person might hear these messages and can help us move the needle forward. So any sharing of any kind is really helpful. Also, for the last couple of years, my daughter Emma and I have had some fun, educational, interesting reels that we made for Instagram during Mito Awareness Week. I really enjoy this time with her, and she does such a phenomenal job raising funds and awareness for Mito through her nonprofit work with Mito Action. Through her Another Helping initiative, Emma has raised over $5,000 so far. It's gone to various Mito Action programs like the Matthew Hardy Camper Fund, the Marcel's Way Family Fund, Mito Santas, and to general education, advocacy, and awareness efforts. Now this year, Emma's changing things up a little bit, and she's set a new goal, to raise another $5,000 for Dahlia's Wish. Now for those that don't know, Dahlia's Wish is something formerly known as Mito Wish Trips, and it's another program through Mito Action. It's to honor and celebrate the life of Dahlia Flagger, daughter of board member Jessica Fine and her husband, Rob Flagger. Dahlia passed away on March 11th, 2022, one week after her 17th birthday. One of her greatest childhood memories was her family's wish trip to give kids the world village. And Mito Action has dedicated this program, Dahlia's Wish, to Dahlia in hopes of providing other children with Mito an unforgettable trip of a lifetime. Emma has dedicated her work through another helping to raising funds for Dahlia's Wish, and it would really mean a lot to her and to us to continue to move towards moving the needle and helping that goal to send one family on a trip of a lifetime. And to tie all of this together, I'm honored to have been a guest on Dahlia's Mom's podcast. It's called I Don't Know How You Do It with Jessica Fine. It's a wonderful platform where Jesse expertly leads discussions with people who stretch the limits of what we think is possible and hear, I don't know how you do it every single day. Now, while I'm not quite sure I fit the mold, I know that her other guests do. You should definitely check out her podcast and give it a listen. And this is all a nice segue as well to today's Parents is Rare episode. We're going from one incredible mom in Jessica 
to a series of incredible moms who shared parts of their stories with me at the International Metabolic Conference in July. Now, last month on Parents is Rare, we heard from some of the FAOD community patients themselves, and this episode is a wonderful follow-up to hear about the perspective from a parent's point of view. For more background on the IMC event and the storytelling series from the patient perspective, you can go back and listen to episode 92. But that's enough of me talking for now. Let me turn it over to the stars of this discussion. Here they are, Lynn, Amber, Christy, Sharika, and Stephanie. My name is Lynn Salser. I am the mom to Alexandra Salser. Alex, she is a 20-year-old college student who has LCHAD. So it's interesting to think about telling my story because I feel like our story is our story, not my story. But as Alex gets older and is finding her voice, we're starting to recognize that we have two stories. They're parallel. They're different. Um, And I can tell stories about lots of different things, but I think... Um, the challenge of, you know, where are you now? Where is the story moment? And I think the, the story moment right now is the fact that I'm a mom of a college student who's 20 years old with LCHAD. And her journey was tough from the beginning. She's a unique, they're all unique, um, but she's she seems to do things in extremes um, and always has. So clinically, they would have always diagnosed her as having a, a severe version of LCHED. However, as she was growing up, you wouldn't have known it. She was running around crazy until she was sick, and we spent a lot of time in the hospital. She never didn't know she had LCHED. We've always had a life living this life, and then adolescence was tough. She uh, went from functioning pretty normal and uh, to having muscle function decline. So um, she and I got to spend her teen years together, and we were bonded. We were already bonded, but we were well bonded. And it was not pretty. It was not fun. But I think the funnest part about that season is watching her own her story, own her health, own the communication with her doctors, which probably is all part of what led to where we are now. I'm in a place of in-between. It feels like it's taken forever to get here, but also no time at all. I've been her mom and I don't know how to not be her advocate because that's that's my job. But she's 20. She's legally in charge of her own care. She's more than cognitively capable of basically running the world. But She's not without need for me. And that is a tough line to walk as a mom. Um, so I, we're, we're supposed to be an empty nester, but I don't feel the freedoms yet to do that. So I feel like it's taken her whole lifetime to get here. And I think this conference a year ago, my husband and I started recognizing, wow, we have a voice too. And it's because what we wouldn't have given to, to know that there were parents who had gone through this. And uh, we want to... I don't know. I, we're still learning along with the whole community all along, but at the same time, we did do, we did learn some things, and we did things, and we've accomplished some things, and I, there are things that we're not sure we would have ever told you we would get to that point. And yet, if you hang out with Alex, of course you were going to, because this is her story. I think we're past the point where I truly am her caregiver, but I also am her caregiver, and it's a really hard paradox line to walk. So that is where we are at this moment of this part of the story. Um, When I think about the emotions and the feelings of of what this season of our life is like, um, 
I don't know how similar and how different they are from an average parent to a college student and a 20 year old. And I think that's an interesting challenge, uh, except they're very heightened. Um, I think we're her biggest cheerleaders for everything she does. It's so exciting to watch her do her things. Um, this was a kid who started out with a tough thing, and then the teenagers looked like we were going to be down for the count. And watching her um, remind us that she had goals and dreams, and that she was going to live her life, um, but also she was also bringing us a part of it. She never left us behind, but they were her goals. They were not our goals. This was her plan, not our plan. We would have chosen simpler, easier plans for her, but that's not Alex's style. So watching her hit these things is exciting. It's also very overwhelming. She loves to make me cry. She loves, it's one of her favorite things. But I, I think this whole season is full of being overwhelmed because I can't help but look back. Um, I can't help but see her and remember that infant and the scary moments. But also, we've been through a lot since then, and we're not a family that dwells on the past. I think we have tried to live every day of her life as though this was ours to celebrate today. Because we didn't know what's coming in place, and nothing has changed. We still don't know what's coming. So we're pretty much living here, but um, sometimes I do get overwhelmed because you can't sometimes help but it reflect back where you've been. Um, and also realize it's taken a lot to get here. This So part of it is I'm tired. There were times that I wasn't as tired, but teen years pretty much knocked that out. And um, she and I are typical mom-daughter. We have those typical mom-daughter tensions, and I think that's real. Again, how much is normal? How much is because of this unique journey we've been on? We are grateful for the friendship we have out with Alex. We have a great open relationship. She does need support. She needs encouragement, and she needs it from us, her parents. She might not tell you that, but she does. And that is sometimes part of why she does share with us because we have, we understand this journey like nobody else has because we've been there with her. So we're her, her closest confidants and sometimes she just needs to have a safe place to, to dialogue. The other thing is we're humbled to be here. This was never a guarantee. We live in a community where we grieve with friends that lose their, their kids or people we haven't met that were on the same journey. That's very heartbreaking and real. And I think the other thing that is probably surprising is that I feel a little lost. And again, I'm a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom. I love being a stay-at-home mom. The best thing in my life has been my girls. And Alex gave me reinforced reasons to never leave that role. I have given her a lot. And that's great, I wouldn't change anything, but it's making this empty nest transition really hard. So I think it's okay, I think it's real to admit that I'm a little lost in this unique season for us. Hi, I'm Amber McKee, and I am mom to two L chatters. Blake is eight, Oliver will be two, and I also have a non-affected that is four. Probably my biggest moment that stands out is when my oldest Blake was born. Um, he was born early, and he had went to the NICU. He was actually flagged on the newborn screen for El Chad. And so they had told us this, and like we were just devastated. Like, well, because he was on um, dextrose and all the good things at the NICU, all of his tests came back normal. So then we felt, oh, relieved. Like, our kid doesn't have this. That's great. 
But that then started the 10-month journey of not knowing what was going on. After we were released from the NICU, he didn't gain weight. He didn't gain any muscle. Actually, he lost any of the muscle that he did have. Um, so at 10 months old, he couldn't eat. He couldn't sit up in the grocery cart. Like, he couldn't do anything. Um, and then that is uh, when he was diagnosed. So then, <laughs> funny enough, we even felt relief then because we had an answer to what was going on. Knowing, just going through all of that, and that's when we kind of got plugged into the FOD community, and we've met several great people that have helped us through that, and it really helped when we came to um, our third pregnancy and found out that, that he was also an L chatter. Um, but just everything in between all of that, the lessons we learned, um, all the valuable medical stuff we've learned, um, just how to navigate and really just stand up for our kids is just so, like, that's it's just so valuable. Hi, my name is Christy Abrams. I live in Maryland with my husband and four kids, and my two oldest children have LCHAD. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how our LCHAD diagnosis came about because it's not typical in the world today. So there is newborn screening, but my kids were not picked up on newborn screening. Let's start in uh, 2013, I just had my son. Um, he was six months old and he had a crisis. I didn't know what it was. I was supposed to leave the country for a work trip the next day and I couldn't leave knowing that everything wasn't 100%. So I took him to the hospital, even though the pediatrician had said, just keep pushing fluids and you know, he'll come to the other side. Well, luckily I took him to the hospital and when we got there, I laid him on the bed and he was just limp. Nobody, you know, everyone came rushing in because they knew at that point something was wrong. It came back at that point that he had an elevated CK and his liver was extended, but they didn't know why. And so they transferred us to another hospital and that led to his first misdiagnosis or his only misdiagnosis of viral myositis. So we stayed a few days in the hospital. He got better on his own. They told me it would never happen again. And then six months later, he had just turned one. I had woke him up to take his sister to swim lessons and you could see it in his eyes. Like I just knew at that point something was wrong. So I took him to the, well, I took him to the pediatrician and I said, it's happening again. And the pediatrician looked at him and walked us to the ER because it was attached to the ER. We got there, his blood sugar was 35. EK was super elevated again, his liver was extended. They sent us again to the bigger hospital. And this time, luckily, they consulted with a geneticist who knew exactly what was wrong as soon as he came in with the symptoms. So we stayed you know, in the hospital for a week and he got better. And we left the hospital knowing he had a fatty acid oxidation disorder, but didn't know which one. So we got a call, I think it was like two days later to tell us that it was LCHAD. So that was the start of our LCHAD journey. That was the worst of it. Luckily, it's been better since we did receive a diagnosis. But at that point, I had two children. One had just been diagnosed with a rare disease and the other one was seemingly healthy. But I wanted to get her tested just to know if she was a carrier or if she, you know, had it. And to everyone's surprise, we found out that she had LCHAD too. So I went from having two healthy children to having two rare disease, two kids with rare disease in a matter of like two months. My name is Sharika Rogers and I am a mom of a seven-year-old who has VLCAD. He was diagnosed on the newborn screen at six days of birth, six days of life. And um, I've been involved in this community since the beginning. 
and just recently since we joined my, with Mino Action to plan these conferences, I've been in the committee to plan the conferences, and so it's just been great to connect with people and to um, to work in this way and serve other families in this way. So the part of my story that I'm going to share starts similarly to the beginning where Kanan was diagnosed, his name is Kanan, my son, and we didn't know anybody in Georgia that had feel cat or any of the other kind of broader um, disorders or classifications of the fatty acid oxidation disorder. And somehow I came across um, Stephanie Harry, who is also in the community. Her son has LCHAT. I think we, she's in Atlanta too, or was in Atlanta, and so we went to the same clinic, the same genetics clinic, and she contacted me from there. And I think my son was maybe six months, so he was still very, very young. We were still very fearful, terrified, you know, confused, didn't really know. A lot of the questions we were asking the doctors in those first days, weeks, months, a lot of the questions were met with, we don't know, we're still trying to see, we'll figure it out together, which is really not what you want to hear from the professionals in the field, right? And so I was, my husband and I were freaked out and we were terrified of, him making it to one, you know, just every night I'm like terrified going in his room and making sure he's still sleeping, you know, living and all those things. And I didn't really know what the future held. And so when I met with Stephanie for that first time, it was just like this weight lifted. Her son at the time was probably seven or so. I think he's probably, yeah, he's probably about seven years older than my son. And so she had kind of been there, done that. Because her son has L-Chat, L-Chat and B-L-Chat are very similar in their treatments. Um, they're both in the same formula, um, that we, we see, we're seen at the same clinic, and restriction of fat, all of those things were pretty much the same. And so to hear from this mom, and not just a regular mom, the mom that Stephanie was, was like, she went in there and researched and knew, and she had articles from the library and all the things, and so she was able to give me a wealth of education and knowledge but also I think the thing that I felt most coming out of our time together was just hope. I just had this like, like people have done it. Here's his other mom whose son had a very severe mutation as well. He's seven, he's playing sports, he's living life. You know, they're not just stuck in their house, fearful of all the germs and, you know, things out there. And she was not only able to give me this, that sense of hope and like education, but just very practical tips. I mean, from how to get them to drink if they're not drinking and, you know, what to do in this situation. And here's a, a snack that I use. And here's this, you know, a fat-free pumpkin muffin that my son loves. And, you know, and so she was able to give me all of these tips and tricks that she had already learned through her seven years. And to have that when I had, I didn't know anybody else and the doctors as helpful and, and smart as they are, they, they're not acquainted with the intimate daily living of, you know, their stuff is research and papers and right labs and stuff like that. And so the fact that she was able to connect with me on a personal mom-to-mom way, it, it just was, it was incredibly helpful. And obviously we've maintained a friendship since then. The first hospitalization my son had, I called her in tears, terrified, petrified. She came to the hospital with like, you know, fat-free muffins and soup and all the things. And like, hey, ask the doctor, sis, did you ask the nurses? Make sure they test for this. And it just... It's helpful, it's so helpful in having this type of a community, but also these one-on-one -on -one friendships that we create through this time for parents that can come alongside you in this journey and be so helpful and encouraging and supportive. And so I think that's a major part of my story because it helped in the beginning where I was, I was floundering. I was like stricken with fear and anxiety and here this mom came and had already been doing it for seven years. 
and it was just incredibly helpful. Um, and I think that has been the foundation of my journey in this community, wanting to do that for other families who are coming along, also very newly diagnosed, and um, provide a little bit of that support and help. So um, that has been probably one of the most meaningful experiences to up till now in our journey. Hi, my name is Stephanie Carey, and I am a mom of a 14-year-old son with LCHAD, and I'm going to just share a little bit about where our journey started. I don't talk about it too often because it, it isn't something that you often bring up. You know, I learned after I had Christopher and all my friends were getting pregnant with our second or third child. Sometimes these stories are hard to tell, and if you're in the midst of a pregnancy right now, this might be a good time to turn the podcast off, and that's okay. So I just want to give that disclaimer before I share a little bit about my story and where our LCHAT adventure started. It started when I was six weeks before pregnancy, and I just woke up and it didn't feel good. I thought I was maybe coming down with the flu, and it's funny because the phrase that I use is, like, I just don't feel good. I don't feel good. And I just kept repeating it over. And then I finally called my OB, and I said, you know, I just don't feel good. And she's like, oh, you have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. It'll be okay. Um, you can just kind of come in. And about three hours later, I was like, I just don't feel good. And she said, why don't you just come in? We'll check your labs. I'm sure everything's fine. And this, My husband's uh, at that time was a kindergarten teacher. And so uh, the first day of school was the following day. So we, he took me to the hospital and they ran labs and they looked at me and they looked at the labs and they said, they, they, there must have been a mix up in the labs. There's no way that her liver enzymes could be this crazy. And I didn't even know what a liver enzyme was at that point. So I was just, they said, we're just gonna keep you here. We're gonna monitor you. We're sure there's just a mix up in the labs. They sent my husband home because it was the first day of school. I contacted a friend to try to come pick me up in the morning. Instead, I woke up and I woke up to a doctor I'd never met before saying, well, you're going to have your baby today. And um, I had taken Bradley Method classes, so we're going to have natural childbirth. And I looked at her, and I, I could be a pit bull. So I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not even having contractions. And she looked at me, and she said, sweetie, if we don't get this baby out, you're going to die, and your baby's going to die too. And then, of course, I just started bawling. And so I said, well, well can you induce me? Like, you know, because I, I wanted to be able to experience natural childbirth. And she said, we just don't have that much time. Where's your husband? And so they called him, and he was in the middle of introducing all the parents to the kids. And the principal um, pulled him aside and said, you know, you need to go to the hospital immediately. Your wife has to have an emergency C-section. And so I was diagnosed with, uh, at the time I was diagnosed with atypical health syndrome because I didn't have high blood pressure. But what we realized looking back is that my blood pressure was, typically I run super low. My blood pressure is like 110 over 60 or even lower at times. And so the fact that my blood pressure was up to 130, although not high considered typically for help syndrome was actually high for me. And so between that, my liver enzymes were super elevated. Um, they needed to get the baby out. Typically what happens when you go into help syndrome is they do an emergency C-section and mom gets better. And that's kind of their treatment for that. At this point, they didn't know that Christopher, um, that's my son, that he had a genetic condition. Um, and so 
there was no reason to think that I wouldn't get better after that. Well, the diagnosis ended up changing to um, help acute fatty liver pregnancy, and they took Christopher out, and I, it was a lot of twilight that first 24 hours, and then I sat up in the bed, and my husband is the one that tells this story best because he remembers it, whereas I, I don't quite, but I sat up in bed the next day, and then I passed out and I crashed and I coded and they sent me to the ICU and put me on life support and my blood just couldn't figure out how to clot. And so the doctors at the time, they thought, well, maybe that they had nicked something. And so they went back in and did exploratory surgery and cleaned me out the best they could because I was just bleeding and it wouldn't stop and doctors and the things that they say. I look back at I just, the way that I deal with some of the crazy things that, that doctors could say sometimes is, you can't change it, you can laugh about it. I will say my family was not laughing when the doctor came out and said, if that doesn't fix her, nothing will. <laughs> but looking back, you just have to put it in the category of, you know, probably of a precious, maybe a little differently. And in fact, it didn't fix me. And so I think that was like the terrifying thing for my family is that I continued to plead. And at the way that the hospital I was working at, the way that it works is that, you know, the certain doctors take precedent over other doctors. So because I went and under OB, OB like were like the top doctors in ICU kind of had to follow their lead on things. Um, and so from a general medical standpoint, you don't want somebody on life support for longer than a couple days because then they can become dependent on it. And so um, OB felt like I needed to get pulled off of life support. ICU did not feel like I was ready for that. And so again, these are all stories that were told to me after the fact because at this point, I don't have any recollection. So OB tried to take me off of life support and my blood pressure skyrocketed and I started hemorrhaging to death and my mom who is a nurse talks about how scary it was because we had lost my sister just mm, a couple years earlier and um, and she's a nurse and so she's like there's this look when a patient dies that you just know like it's coming. So it was terrifying because she knew that look. And Ryan said that, you know, for him, it was like, well, I couldn't die because I had to be there to care for Christopher. So I couldn't just die, which is, so it's just interesting to hear different people's perspectives. And the OB, bless her heart, was not, like, this was not a typical thing. Like, I had asked, actually, before I had Christopher, because, you know, as a new parent, you get the book of all the questions you're supposed to ask the doctors. I had specifically asked the question of what is your maternity mortality rate and they were like nobody's ever asked us that question before and, and I did and so then I'm a patient that asked that question and now they're watching me possibly die and um, she just so she froze and it was the ICU nurse that said and again no judgment this is not a typical experience that she's you know but the ICU nurse said you will reintubate her immediately you know or she's going to die and so um, at that point the ICU took over my care and um, were the primary ones they reintubated me and um, I was on life support for eight days unconscious and they gave me a product called Factor 7 that they use in front lines for soldiers when they're bleeding out. It just so happens that there are two hospitals in Atlanta that carry that and I happened to be at the one of the ones that did and it was Factor 7. It was based on a hypothesis. The hematologist came in and said, 
They've used this with soldiers. Theoretically, this could work because my clotting factors were all out of whack. And so she went forward and based on a hypothesis and it worked and it saved my life, which is interesting to reflect on being a part of the rare disease community for so long. And that's how we work out of, right, is hypotheses. And so um, there's there's power in hypotheses, right? Like, and working out of that, even if you don't know for sure it's gonna work, um, especially when it's the only thing available. And so I spent eight days uh, on life support having very crazy dreams, which you could have probably a whole podcast about, filled with crazy and laughter and scary and terrifying. That song, I want to be sedated. You don't want to be sedated. Like, <laughs> or at least, or at least it would go well for me. So in the sense of I had some crazy dreams, but when I woke up, I'll never forget the day that I woke up and um, realizing starting to realize that the dreams weren't reality. One of the dreams I had is that I had twin kids and that I was at a boot camp for new parents and I was in a tent going back and forth between um, AC and heat. Maybe it was because my temperature fluctuation and stuff, I don't know. I also dreamt that I was underwater and scuba diving. The um, cuffs that they put on your legs to prevent circulation, that to increase circulation goes which is the same sound that it makes when you go scuba diving with the PVC stuff. So it's interesting to kind of see the correlation between my dreams. And then I woke up and I realized that none of these things were true, that eight days of my life were gone and I had no recollection of. And I was terrified to go to sleep that night because I was afraid I'd never wake up again. And it was a long recovery. like. Bouts forward like three months later because the first recollection I have of my son was at that point. It was like after eight days. And I remember them bringing him in and my arms um, were so weak that I couldn't, like I had to kind of, they had to help me hold, hold him and they had to hold him with me and, and prop my arm up on a special pillow because I could barely hold him. But that wasn't the first time I had actually seen him. That was just the first time I remember seeing him. And uh, I happened to find a video of that my husband took for the first time I actually saw him because the, the hospital was amazing in the sense that all the time that I was sedated, they would bring a blanket and they would lay it on me and then bring it back to Christopher in the NICU to make sure he could have my scent of smell there. And the moment they took me off of life support, they had like six nurses down there to make sure I didn't do anything crazy. And they brought him just to lay him on me. And it was strange kind of seeing that video because I just don't remember it. And I'm like, it's like this third body experience of like, oh, like I'm all yellow, I'm swollen three times the size of myself. And like, but I was so grateful because they didn't have to do that, you know, but they went that extra mile, they went that extra step. And there were these little clips of my husband in the hospital with Christopher in the NICU um, when I was still sedated and you hear the nurses asking, how's Stephanie doing? Have you figured out a name? And he's like, no, we're not naming him until she wakes up, you know, like he, it was good. It was good that he held on the hope of that. And um, our star was a bit rocky to say the least. All of those things talk, I mean, right, our experiences in the hospital and, and our journeys, they, they just teach you so much. I mean, um, I spent the next year learning how to rewalk, learning how to do a lot of a lot of things, and then caring for this child that I, I knew nothing about, Elchad, and and so just trying to take the energy that I had to um, to learn about Elchad while also just trying to 
come to terms with my own health changes. That's how our journey with Elchad has started. And, you know, I feel, sometimes I feel regret sharing the story because it sounds super traumatic and super scary and super, you know, it's part of, it's part of our journey though. It's part of our story. By no means is it our complete story or a day in a day out story because, you know, we have so much like love and excitement and this journey with El Chad, with Christopher and, um, and although we had this rocky start, we've had ups and downs, but we've had so many amazing moments. And Christopher has taught us so much about how to get creative with things and how to like do things differently. And I think that's made our lives way more rich. And, and I also try to, any clinician that I meet, sometimes I, I do try to like emphasize there's a connection between having a child with an FAOD, specifically the long chain disorders, but sometimes the medium chains, I think as well. There's a 30% at the time when I was looking into the research, it was um, the average person that goes into help acute fatty liver is like 0.01%. And then your likelihood if you have a child with a long chain FAOD goes up to 30%. And so um, at the time I had to ask the question, you know, so do clinicians run the pan- try to run those panels quicker? Like if they have a mom and help, do they, you know? Um, so I always try to pose that or just remind clinicians of that because the um, amazing, you know, OB doctors that I dealt with, they had no clue about the connection because there's just this gap of understanding, I think, at times with the impact of FAODs on maternal health and they were amazing and, and had me come back in and, and talk a little bit about that to the NICU staff and, and do some education. But I think there I think there's more education that needs to be done there and I hope at some point to be able to be a part of that. So I want to once again thank Lynn, Amber, Christy, Sharika, and Stephanie. These fantastic individuals took their time and spent some of their emotional capital on sharing their story I know that can be incredibly challenging, especially during the conference when there's lots going on. As you know, I'm a firm believer in storytelling and the importance of it. And whether it's from the patient or parent perspective in rare disease, and in this case, in the FAOD community, I still lean into this quote from my fave, Miss Brené Brown, where she says, owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing we'll ever do. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.